joining up with uh, Abram, and as he will become Abraham in this text, uh, in, in Genesis 17. We're going to read, I'm going to read to you guys from God's word, uh, Genesis 17, 1 through 17. Hear God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her, her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples, shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Father God, there's nothing like your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you were a God who loves his people so much that he would come to Abraham and that you would speak to him and that your words would be recorded and that these things that are challenging and hard to hear would point us to your son, Jesus, who would be the living word, who would show us your fullness and your glory. And we thank you, Lord, for sending your spirit to write these words on our hearts Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much through your words. I pray, Lord, that you send your spirit to us tonight to speak to us through these words, to bind them to our hearts, and to lead us into the truth of an everlasting covenant. I pray this in your name. Amen. 
So a few weeks ago, uh, my, my family and I, like so many of us, we got to go on vacation. We got to travel. Travel, I feel like, is a really big deal this summer. And we went to Canada. Uh, we visited Montreal and Quebec City. Uh, we had an amazing time. I, I don't know if anyone has been up there. Not only is there no humidity, but it's just a delightful place. It's beautiful. Um, now, if, if you've never been there, it's probably like the most European of cities that you can easily visit from the East Coast. Um, they're really old, they're really historic, they're full of art and culture. Uh, but like the one thing that probably sets Quebec off from like any other city in, or region in Canada is the official language is French. Uh, and, 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 you know, that was a challenging thing, but a fun thing for us as we learned uh, some French. Uh, everywhere else in Canada, the language is, is English, but, but not here. See, Quebec has a proud and complex history that's tied to its time as a French colony. Uh, but it's still now, it's, on, it's under British rule, and they have this, they have this, this weird conflict about who they are and, and how they represent themselves. Um, but it's amazing how their commitment to remembering and living out their cultural priorities have shaped this province. And it, like it, one thing that just jumped out to me was just the license plates. Um, you know how on every license plate there's like a motto, like the, you know, the whatever state? Uh, well, they've got one too in Quebec, and it reads, Je me souviens, which if you don't speak French means, I remember. And it serves the people of Quebec as a reminder that as they move onward in their future, they shouldn't forget their history. And so as we come to God's word and we see how faith has been formed in the life of Abraham, we encounter God's desire for his people to remember his covenant and to be obedient in keeping the sign of circumcision which the Lord prescribed. Now, if you were just reading it for the first time this morning, if you were hearing me read it, this is a tricky passage, not only to interpret, but just to read. It feels like it just keeps saying the same thing over again. It keeps repeating itself. And, and that's because this wasn't written in English. You know, this wasn't written for the ESV. We do a, our best to translate this into ways that we can understand, but it was written for a people that didn't have a personal paper Bible. And, and in Hebrew, there's a lot of beautiful tools and grammatical tools and literary tools that they use. Uh, and this is, this is one that's called a chiasm. It's a tool that helps the author tell a story full of rich details while conserving their words. It uses repetition to focus the audience on the main idea. The main message is kind of like a sandwich. This one, there's a lot of different forms. This one's like a sandwich. Now, if you have a ham sandwich on the outside, you've got, you know what? Bread, good, you guys are with me. You guys are awake, I love it. Um, then moving in, you put like the mayo and the mustard and then the vegetables, you got maybe lettuce and tomato and then you've got some cheese and then finally you get to the ham. Now, when you say, you know, what am I going to have for lunch today? You don't say, well, I'd like a bread and lettuce and tomato and tomatoes and all the things. Sandwich. You're like, no, I want a ham sandwich. Why? Because what's in the middle is what matters. What's in the middle is, is the point. And that's the same thing with this form of a chiasm. See, this text is telling us something. It's at the center of this chiasm 
uh, it says this, you shall keep my covenant. And here's what it is. You will be a people that to live and be blessed by me requires you to be obedient to what I have for you. God wants Abraham to hear this, that the covenant is everything. The covenant is primary. Everything depends on the covenant. The promise of future land for your, descend- for your descendants? Covenant. The future, uh, the, your, your future descendants uh, will become a nation by what virtue? Covenant. Good, you guys are getting it. Uh, should anyone disassociate themselves from the covenant, he is cut off from the nation. Nine times in this text, we hear the word covenant, covenant, covenant. But covenant is a very big deal. It's such a big deal that this is God's primary means of blessing his people. And obedience to the covenant isn't merely law or more rules. Rather, uh, the covenant is part of God's unfolding plan of redemption for all of his creation. See, the Bible is not just the story of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, but it's the story of Yahweh, the God of the whole universe. You know, there's not one speck of this world that that God does not say, this is mine. This is his story that he shares with us. And his mission is to work in and through his people to be blessed and for us to be a blessing. And so... If you may not know, like, what is a covenant? We're going to keep this part short. You may have heard some of this as you've been walking through Genesis. It's essentially, it's a contract. It's an agreement. We, we actually, we use them today. Uh, and a great example is a wedding. If you've ever been to a wedding, if you've been in a wedding, you've seen a covenant. You stand up before God and, and with witnesses, and you, and you, you know, you stand there, and a pastor makes some, says some things, and you make some promises to another. He says things like, you know, will you take this man or woman to have and to hold and to love and protect in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, and you become inseparable, and you become one? They're more than mere words. This is a binding contract. This is a serious covenant that we make. You know, and what is the covenant sign that we give in, in the union of man and wife? We give a ring. We wear a ring, a seal. Is a covenant, it's a covenant guarantee. It's proof that you were allowed to hold the other party to their promises that, that when they made this in the covenant. Now, in, in Genesis, in the days of kings and in the, in the ancient Near East, like a weaker king who had made a covenant with a stronger king could show the sign of the covenant and say, you promised me that you would uphold this. And the, old, the, the other king would say, yes, I did. You're right. You, have, you can show proof. You have guarantee. See, I wear this ring on my left hand as, as a sign. I mean, this ring has no power. It's not from the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't make me go invisible. It's not all powerful. It binds us all together. Um, no, uh, it doesn't do anything cool except one thing. This ring is a megaphone to the world that I have given myself to another one, that Lindsay is my bride She's my forever person, and we are joined. And to sign, it's a a reminder of my marriage. Because after all, what does a sign do? It just points to something. It just tells you something's over here. This is the real thing to be looking at. 
So in the story today, we read about the covenant sign that God gives his people is circumcision. And now it's, you know, it's here that we go, you hear the record scratch a little bit, and you're like, what? You had me at promises and rings and signs and weddings, but what's the deal with circumcision? Like, it's gross. I mean, we can say that. It's, it's, un, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's, but it's gross. And like, why is circumcision a sign? It's not even like an outward sign. It's not something, it's not like, like it could be a tattoo. But it's, not, it's nothing. It's, 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 it's private, it's personal. I'm sure Abraham would have preferred a tattoo that said, Je me souviens, and, or like a nice needlepoint to hang on his wall. But, like, I mean, circumcision is strange, and it's foreign, and it's, it's gross to us. But to the original hearers of this text, the people that are familiar with this practice, it's pretty normal. See, th- like, this isn't the origin story for circumcision for the people of Israel. This isn't, like, how it came to be. This was actually a fairly common practice in the ancient Near East. The Bible actually laughs at the Philistines for not being circumcised. Like, a lot of people did this. There's histories and records of it occurring in Egypt. Um, And, see, the rite of circumcision was sometimes performed when a man came to puberty. Uh, But more commonly, I learned this when I was studying for this, um, you know, more, more commonly, it would have been performed when he was betrothed to be married. And there would have been a ceremony in which the groom's new father-in-law would have performed the circumcision as a sign of protection, welcoming him into the new family as a blessing to be fruitful. Yeah, I know. My father-in-law's right over there. Uh, it It was believed that the foreskin was a barrier to conception, and removing it would remove the blockage to fertility. So now I think by the uncomfortable chuckles that I'm getting, uh, you know, we can all agree that this, we're glad that this ceremony is no longer the normal cultural practice for us. And maybe this is why they let a youth guy come and have this text, is because I'm used to sitting and having uncomfortable conversations with people. Um, but, in, but in taking this right, God takes something ordinary like, this, is, this would have been ordinary, and he makes it extraordinary. See, in verses 7 and 13, God shares that this desire isn't just for Abraham. It's for his house and his descendants. It's to be an everlasting covenant of everlasting possession. It's a sign for an entire people. God is galvanizing community through this sign. He's building his church. And now as far as signs go, this isn't something you can't lose. This isn't like a ring that if it falls down the drain, you lost it. No, you can't lose this one. And God is instituting a practice of covenant obedience that will be passed on from generation to generation of remembering his promises. In stipulating this change, God is abstracting circumcision from something that was closely related to sexual potency And he's rebranding it as a sign of his covenant promise that Abraham and his descendants will be fruitful and that they can remain dedicated to the Lord. 
And if you're reading in the white spaces of this text, if you're listening to the themes and the patterns of Abram's story and in this story today, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised by this. You know, in fact, this should, this, this should uh, for us, take us right back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, this has always been God's plan for his people, right? See, Adam was to walk blamelessly with God and care for the land that he was placed in. And he was to be fruitful and multiply. And God is passionate about the preservation and the rehabilitation of his creation. And he's passionate, his heart's desire is to have the world filled with his image bearers. God's going to make a way for this to happen. Let's see, the covenant sign of circumcision for, Abram, for Abraham is, is the covenant promise coming true. The seed that was, look, that, was, that was promised after the fall in Genesis 3, 17, God promises a future deliverer who will be born to break free his people from the weight of sin and restore his broken world. That God's plan is to make all that sad come untrue. So Genesis has been tracing the line of that promised seed in Genesis 3, and it's taken us to this point where an old man and a barren woman, and through the covenant sign of circumcision, he's making this permanent mark on his people, reminding them that God will remember the promises of redemption. See, the curse of sin is becoming undone. The promise is coming true, but the sign here requires participation. It requires obedience. See, back in verse 2, when, when the Lord Almighty shows up, he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. In order for Abraham to see the covenant sign, he needs to be obedient. Covenant partnership requires participation in actively following God's will. Abraham was to walk before God and be blameless, just as Adam and Enoch and Noah had walked blamelessly before God. This is a phrase we've heard. Abraham has been trying to walk with God, but he wasn't very good at it, as you guys have seen, as you guys have heard. There's been plenty of examples in which, in which Abram had tried to jumpstart God's promises and fulfill them in his own power, his own strength, and in his own time. He had gotten a son, Ishmael, through Hagar, as you heard last week. But God said that this wasn't the plan. This isn't how it's going to go. Abram, trust the plan. And so circumcision for Abram was an act of both repentance and dependence. He was to walk before the God Almighty, the God who has his hand on everything. That's what Almighty means. The God for whom nothing is impossible and submit fully to him. See, blameless here it doesn't mean faultless. It doesn't mean sinless. Abraham, Abraham had been far from perfect. I think we can all agree on that. And God wasn't recognizing and rewarding his perfection. He was calling Abraham to remember that blamelessness is only found in God himself. This would have been really reassuring 
for the original hearers of this text. And it, and it should be for us too. See, if the covenant depended on actually achieving blamelessness, then we're doomed, right? See, because of the problem of sin, to be blameless was going to be an inevitable failure. I mean, try as you might, righteousness cannot be attained on its own. Blamelessness is only found in faithfully walking with God. You know, a pastor and professor from, from our dena- uh, denomination named Meredith Klein says that uh, blamelessness means being whole or complete, and that we are fully dedicated to God and his mission. Our mission is gone, and his mission is the new mission and direction of our lives. And the word used here for blameless is used, it's used like 51 other times in the Old Testament, and most commonly, he's not talking about people, he's talking about sacrifice. It's most commonly used word with talking about God's requirements for sacrifice. This points us to a need for a sacrificial system. And when the Lord institutes, when the Lord institutes the sacrificial system to atone for the sins of the people, the animals are to be blameless without blemish. The lamb that was supposed to be sacrificed at the first Passover in Egypt was supposed to be blameless without blemish. And here too, circumcision was to be the way in which God's people were made blameless. See, circumcision is really about righteousness in the notion that circumcision is about justification through an ordeal that sheds blood. It's gross. Because sin's gross. It's to become the symbol of cutting off and casting out that which, everything that which impedes holiness and a right relationship with God. It was not to be a racial badge It would serve as a bloody reminder of the cost of holiness. This was the price that every Jewish boy would undergo. Failure to do it and you're out. A procedure that even Jesus would undergo. You ever catch that when you read Luke 2 at Christmas time? Right there at the end, verse 21 says, Luke 2.21 tells us that at the very end of the birth account of Jesus, that at the end of eight days, he was circumcised and was called Jesus. The name to him, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. See, the real problem in this story isn't the barren womb of Sarah or the age of Abraham. The real underlying issue is man's belief that he can live apart from God. Genesis serves as a a preface of origins. Who is God and who are we? God is a God that is crazy about creating He loves his creation, and he is on a mission to restore. And our mission is to join God at his invitation to be about restoring this broken world that we live in. And we remember that this story wasn't written for us. I mean, it it was, but it wasn't. The first recipients of the story were the Israelites. They'd been recently freed from slavery in Egypt, and they received this story as they're wandering in the wilderness following Moses 
and this God who has ensured their freedom, and God has promised them, I am leading you to the land that I've promised Abraham, a land in which you can rest, a land in which you'll be blessed. And after all that they've seen, I mean, think about everything that they'd seen from the freedom of their captivity, from the Ted Plagues, miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, the pillars of fire and smoke, like the destruction of their captors. Going into the land, there's still a problem. The land's not empty. People are home. And it's filled with these huge cities of these warring tribes like Jericho and people that they don't want them to move into town. This is our land. We don't want you to come here. That's a problem, right? These people are violent. These people don't believe in the same God as them. They don't want them to have any influence in their land and in their culture. Can you imagine the fear that they must have had? Like, even seeing what they had all seen. Like, I think we can humanize them a little bit and be like, that's scary. I mean, is it possible that they might have some doubt? that maybe their hope was a little bit gone. Any Ted Lasso fans in here? Yes, I got a couple of you. Now, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso, you don't know what it is. It's a, it's a comedy on Apple TV uh, about an American college football coach who moves to London to become the head coach of an English premier soccer team. And he knows nothing about the sport, nothing. And it's a total fish out of water story. It's hilarious. Um, it's, it's centered on sports, but the show's not really about sports. It's about people. It's about people dealing with life's problems. It makes it really human and fun to watch. Um, you know, you're always kind of waiting for Ted to fail, but you're always rooting for him to succeed. Uh, he's kind. He's optimistic. Um, he wants to see the best in people. But in this one episode, um, he's the coach of the Richmond Greyhounds, and they're nearing the end of their season. And... Uh, and uh, and they're, they're going to be playing a really difficult opponent. There's no chance of winning. His own coaching staff is like, you can't win. There's no chance of winning. And it's not the normal. The problem is it's not like the normal like, pride of, of winning, shame of losing. Winning would mean security and safety for the team. Losing could, could spell like financial ruin, step back, possibly losing his job. It's a, it's a must-win situation. Um, and... No one believes it's possible. And he seems like everyone has already resigned themselves to the gloom of defeat. And he's bothered by this. He's like the eternal optimist. Ted asks, we haven't lost yet. We haven't even played. Don't you all have any hope? And everyone laughs in his face. And, and May, the bartender in the pub, uh, she looks at him and says, oh, Ted, haven't you lived here long enough to realize it's the hope that kills you? This kind of reminds me of our friend Abraham. I mean, after nearly 25 years since God first uttered this promise, looking at his 99, he's 99, looking at his 100th birthday. No descendant. The dream's gone. Think of the Israelites, fledgling nation, slave nation, facing unimaginable odds of coming home and finding rest. And what about us? I mean, if you've been paying attention to what's happening in the world, there's a lot of bad news that's happening in our culture. And the church in America is struggling to find an answer. Like, can I be honest about that? Like, what does it mean to stand for justice anymore? How do we right the wrongs of our past? 
aren't Christians just a political super PAC? What does it mean to be pro-life? Do you feel the tension? Like, I'm afraid to look at social media. Like, not even get in the comments section, just even look at it. It's full of bad news. There's giants in our land, right? Huge philosophical giants that are tugging at Christians and trying to knock us down. You guys know what the fastest growing religious affiliation is? The nuns, right? Not the people with black robes and hats. Uh, the people who identify themselves as having no religious affiliation. Our world is becoming increasingly post-Christian. And as scary as that is, I think our biggest problem is that we feel the need to look inward to fix our situation, for our solution. If we... If we could have the right things to say, if only we could get the right legislation passed, if only we could stop, you know, people would stop judging us, if only they just listen. Right now, there is a huge fear about speaking the truth in love, like we're called to. See, right now, our culture, in our culture, everything is so polarized that it seems nearly impossible to say anything without fear of being canceled. We've got a culture problem in the church. And we know that God has called us to be set apart, to live as a city on a hill, to live as salt and light to the earth, to be agents of his grace. But we tend to engage the world by either fighting against the culture as culture warriors, by fleeing from the world and being separatists, or by just accommodating the world and contributing to its decline. But none of these are God's way. See, these are all rooted in how we see ourselves. But God's way is different. See, God's way is to tell us that apart from him, we are part of the problem. Says Jack Miller, who was a pastor in our denomination, used to say, see, the good news of the gospel is this. Cheer up. You're worse than you think. But God's grace is greater than you can possibly imagine. See, the problem isn't that we see the wrong problem. It's that our own hearts are a part of the problem. And I think this passage about circumcision speaks to this. See, the theology of circumcision from this point forward is no longer about the physical problem. It becomes a spiritual one. It becomes one about the heart. We hear Paul talk about circumcision all over the New Testament but it's most commonly rooted as he talks about circumcision of the heart. We hear it in the Old Testament. Moses uses this right in Deuteronomy. He says, Deuteronomy 36, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Doesn't that sound familiar? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Blaise Pascal said that man was made with a God-shaped vacuum. There's a void in our hearts that only God can fill. And if he isn't filling it, we're going to try to cram all sorts of other junk in there, all sorts of fake gods, and try and worship and follow them. See, our hearts are constantly trying to deceive us that we are the ones who alone know what is right and good, and that the method, I mean, that's the method in like every Disney movie, right? Just go follow your heart, Moana, you know? Go out there and, 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 and you, you alone know can do it. It's in you. It's not. 
The Bible has a lot to say about the heart, about how it's deceitful above all else, about how it's an idol factory, about how it's made of stone. But God is so gracious as he moves to us and he provides the circumcision from our own, for our own hearts. He doesn't ask us to do it, he does it for us. He exposes the things and he, has them, he cuts away the barriers to walking blamelessly with him. And he did this through Jesus Christ. God himself would come to us in the form of a baby. Born from Mary, whose womb was incapable of having a baby. Sound familiar? The son of David. The son of Abraham. Our king has come. And he came, not in glory, not in power, but in humility. And he humbled himself so, so lowly that he himself on his eighth day of life would get circumcised to identify with his people and their need. That he would bleed for us before he is even given a name. That he would bleed again and he would die on a Roman cross and he would take the curse of the covenant that we deserved. I mean, did you hear that part when we read this in verse 14? Anyone who does not follow this covenant will be cut off. Look, we failed. Over and over and over and over again we fail. Jesus never failed. Jesus never failed. And yet, he took the punishment. And he was cut off so that we might have life. You hear Colossians 2? And read Colossians 2, 11 through 14. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, given us all of our, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ our hope, our record of debt and wrong, and failures, and unfaithfulness has been nailed to the cross, and we bear the shame and guilt of that sin no more because Jesus Christ has paid our debt. The barrier of walking blamelessly with God has been removed. And I believe that's another reason that God chose circumcision. It's private. See, why not a billboard or to the world or a tattoo or something that you can boast in? You can boast in a sign. This is personal. This is private. This is an intimate reminder for the believer about an inward reality. This is about heart change. Remember in Matthew 23 when Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he tells them that their lives are like a dirty cup? All they are concerned about is washing the outside how we look to the world, how we live and act, how the world thinks of us. Jesus says, you got it wrong. You wash the inside first, and then the outside will be clean. 
When we allow our hearts to be changed, then our lives will be transformed and our love for God and our neighbor will be a sign unto themselves. This has been his plan all along. It's his mission. It's his great rescue mission to restore the kingdom. And I call this sermon Mission Impossible because that's what he does. He makes the impossible possible. See, because of sin, we were unable to earn God's blessing. But by his grace, through faith and the work of Jesus Christ, we've been given a new covenant. That we, through Jesus, are invited to be recipients of the new covenant promise. The promise that Jesus signed with his own blood. That the covenants are a big deal for us people who call ourselves Reformed, right? They're a big deal because they show... Uh, they show uh, how, how we can understand the unfolding story of God's people and, their sal- and our salvation through Jesus and our inclusion in the grace of Jesus Christ. The covenantal formula that God shows us over and over again is this. It's a promise that God makes to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's very little wiggle room in that. It's going to happen. If God wills it to happen, he's going to make the impossible possible. And, he's, and in so doing, he draws us into his mission. He's promised to keep the covenant as he said he would all those years ago, and he blesses us through it so that we can bless others. Look, Christians can have hope. It's in your name. Like God's plan is to allow people who have been changed by the grace of the gospel to enter into the hardest situations with all humility and empathy with the same amount of love and grace and allow the gospel to transform the broken places in your world for his glory. I mean, that's the hope I want. Now, remember Ted Lasso? This is what he has to say in response to that. He says, so I've been hearing this phrase y'all got over here that I ain't too crazy about. It's the hope that kills you. Y'all know that? I disagree, you know. I think it's the lack of hope that comes and gets you. See, I believe in hope. I believe in belief. Now, from where I'm from, from, we got a saying too, yeah? A question, actually. Do you believe in miracles? Now, I don't need y'all to answer that question for me, but I do want you to answer that question for yourselves right now. Do you believe in miracles? And if you do... And y'all can circle up with me right now. Come on, let's go. Christ our hope, do you believe in miracles? The God Almighty who can transform a rainbow, a circumcision. He can transform an ugly cross into a sign of remembrance and hope. He can transform you and the broken places in this world into testimonies of his greatness and his glory. And we get invited to get a front row seat. How great is that? Let me pray for us. Father, you're so good. We need you. We love you. We thank you for the grace of an everlasting covenant. We thank you that is your plan all along. And that you love and you use broken people like ourselves to rebuild and remake your fallen world. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to the places that you call us to follow you and serve you. And we look forward, Lord, to seeing your work done in, in this church in this city, in this state, and in this world. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.